You ready? Yes. Is it live? It will be in a second. It's not live. We're going to record it. If you mess oh, up, right, then. then you can say, the, I don't want this bit in there. Oh, so, God, no, today on the Tim Marner podcast show, we've got Joe Horton from Inner Wisdom Holistic Training Academy. And my gongist. How do you feel about that? <laughs> <laughs> so, Joe, take me back to um, when you first start. No, no, let's not. When you first started doing this, but what did you want to be when you were little? When I was little, oh my God. When I was little, I was like a hyperactive kid who had that much energy. There was no stopping me, but I literally had no clue what it was I wanted to be. The only thing I enjoyed as a kid was sport. So I was sport mad. Everything was sport. My education ended up being sport. Football and rugby, played for the county. Um, but yeah, everything was just sport. And what, what did you do at college? Uh, at college, I did a higher national diploma in leisure. Yeah. Business management. And I got... Um, a straight distinction profile and one student of the year award. And then I was the first student to go on and do my degree in a year. And I qualified with a 2-1. And I, my degree is in sport, business management and IT. So what happened then after you did that? So after that, um, I really wanted, I did my dissertation on rugby, rugby league. I was big into rugby. I was scrum half for right. uh, Crossfields in Warrington. Um, and I wanted to go into sports development, but at the time, um, I think the starting salary for women was something like nine grand, and it was just there was no way I could obviously live off nine grand um, at the time. So I ended up, I applied to the navy, and I applied to the police, and the police came through first. So I went to the police, and I spent ten years. Let's go in the police. Sorry. Did you want to go in the police? Did you ever think? You um, ever... No, it was kind of. I knew I wouldn't wouldn't be suited to a desk job yeah. for all the tea in China because I can't abide being stuck in a room, if you like. And I suppose with the police, it was an active job, and it was something that was steady. You never hear of police force getting made redundant, do you? <laughs> so I kind of applied to the police. Um, yeah, I ended up spending ten years. On so the job. Set me for your police career then. What? Oh, so I joined the police, um, and I literally went from nicking traffic cones and trolleys and running around naked to being fully dressed, putting traffic cones back, and adhering to the rules with trolleys. <laughs> it was like one extreme to the other. Um, I started off on the beat. Uh, spent nearly eighteen months pedalling a bike around Manchester in all weathers. It was shocking. And I did question my decision a lot at that time. Um, I eventually got my driving license and then I was blue lighting it everywhere. Um, I think I did three years on response. So division, basically you respond to all calls, mainly blue light jobs, stuff like that. Domestics, burglaries, you name it. So I ran around doing all that. Then I joined a plain clothes unit which was sneaky beaky work, if you like. So we would get intel on, like, I don't know, like uh, gangs that were doing stuff in the area. So we'd go in early hours of the morning, 
and basically do jobs. So we'd go and lock them up or if we had intel on where stuff had been stored, etc., we'd do all that kind of work. So that was a weird time in my life because I literally I lived through the night, if you like. I could finish a shift at 10 at night and then get a call at one in the morning saying, can you come back in? So it was a really bizarre time in my life. That was fun, but it just got tedious in the end. It's like permanent jet lag. Uh, and then from there, I ended up going on to firearms. How did you get into firearms? So I like a bit of a challenge and it popped up on, they have like an internal system. What year, what year was this? What year was I on firearms? Oh God. Uh, when did I leave? Left in 2010. So it must have been around 2005, 2006. So how many women were in the sort of armed at that time none none non-operational anyway so it popped up on the uh, internal internet thing saying that there's vacancies on firearms unit and it started off as a joke that the lads kind of goaded me saying i bet you could do that because i've always been like really fit and i love a challenge so i applied and then i just went through the process it was like a, an interview then you had to go to a basic test day to check common sense around firearms i passed all that and then i found myself on the actual three month training course and what, what were you doing the three months what kind three of three months yeah what were you doing with him he basically trained us with a slp nine millimeter self-loading pistol uh, they trained us with a to begin with they had an mp5 um and then baton gun and taser so basically spent three months learning how to use all the weapons on an outdoor range, doing outdoor exercises. And then the last four weeks were spent doing training on like how you do searches and car strikes and stuff like that. Did um, you? It was unbelievable. I, I never shot a gun in my life. Were you, were you the only woman there doing that? The only woman there. There was a hundred and... I think there was 185 men on firearms and I was the only woman. And of the training, if I remember rightly, there was 10 targets. I think there was about 20 of us on the training course and I was the only female. And what was it like being the only female? Oh, it was, I don't know. It was nerve wracking, but the lads who I trained with were lovely, really lovely. And what helped was, and I didn't know this at the time because I'd never even fired a spud gun let alone a bloody a real gun mm. i was really good they uh my nickname was dead eye dick because i never missed the target <laughs> and i could literally we used to have these challenges so for example the nine mil uh, self-loading pistol is only really effective from a maximum of 25 meters and we went down to the bottom of the range which is 50 meters and in the prone position so lay on the floor i got nine out of ten rounds on the target with an slp at 50 meters so I was just, I just had a natural ability of shooting. So that really helped me because obviously it managed to gain respect with the lads. And what else I did as well, I went through the normal routine as the lads did. So all the physicals and everything were the same. Mm. And I asked for that because I didn't want people thinking like I wanted the lads who I was working with to have trust in me. Do you know what I mean? Because at the end of the day, if anything happens on these jobs and I'm, you're always paired up on firearms. So if I was with one of these lads, I would have to do for them what they could do for me. So one of the tests, for example, I had to drag a 55 kilogram dummy 
uh, 200 metres down uh, the firing range. Wow, at the time, and even now, I only weigh 52 kilograms myself. So it was hard work. But where there's a will, there's a way. So yeah, it was good fun. So you did that for three months, and then yeah, what, what happens after that? And then I went out, actually out onto the firearms unit, um, and I was operational on firearms for, I think it was three years. And I spent the last 12 months of my career uh, at the airport, on firearms at the airport. Kind of got to the point where I'd had enough of the police and I was looking for, I was kind of looking for somewhere to go where I could think about what, I, what it is that I wanted to do. So I finished my career on firearms at the airport. So when you were at the airport, you were thinking this isn't for, that isn't for you? Yeah, I just, what happened when I got to the airport, it was quite interesting this, I did a, um, it's really weird to hear this, but as a police officer, they train you to shoot people, but then you have to save the life. So you get like advanced, um, what do you call it? Uh, first aid, if you like, but we get taught defib and, and stuff like that. So I've just done a week training with defib and cpr and all the extra stuff that we get taught and i was on duty i'd finished the course on the friday and i was on duty on the monday and i remember a staff from the airport had a heart attack and died right in front of me and i had to resuscitate him and i saved his life and then it was weird it was like something come over me and it was like right i've done what i was here to do that's it and i knew that from somewhere in here that my time there was done um, yeah, and I just started looking at elsewhere for stuff and you just eventually saved, left. You saved his life. Just saved his life, yeah. I was working on him. Oh, God. I ended up with holes in the knees of my pants from kneeling on the tarmac and I actually broke his sternum. Um, but there was, a, there was a delay in getting the defib there because the, the paramedic who's, uh, who were on site were tied up with something going on in the actual airport. So I had to wait for the... We used to call them water fairies, but the fire brigade. We had to wait for the fire brigade to tip up with a defib. Um, so, yeah, I was just constant. Over 10 minutes, I was doing CPR and breaths and everything on him. And, yeah, saved his life. It was amazing. Yeah, but it was weird. It just came over me. It was like, right, that's the reason why I was here. I'm done. And then after that... I... Really time have you been quite spiritual through this time where you were... Oh, not at all. Sure. Not at all. No, I used to think the stuff I do now, it's it's interesting because I was always drawn to it, but because it wasn't like mainstream, I kind of half of me thought it was a bit hippie and weird. So I stayed away from it, if you like. I didn't want to be seen as the weird person. I was always like the life and soul of the party, playing up to what people wanted me to be, the G.I. Joe. Do you know what I mean? So I kind of stayed clear of it. But in terms of intuition, I've always had these really strong, intuitive feelings. Yeah. Like, for example, when I was nine, I was walking home from primary school. And the primary school was literally around the corner from where I lived. And I got around the bend and it just come over me. My, gran my great granddad's died. And when I got to the front door, my gran opened the door and she said, oh, Pop's died. And I just said, I know. It was weird. It just... So these things have always been going on with me, but yeah, I just never, never pursued it until much later in my life, should we say. So from you saving that guy's life, how long was yeah. it after before you decided, what, what, were you, um, what was you in your head? What were you going to be doing if you left the police? I'd, I've, 
I'm a bit of an adventure chick and I spent a lot of my life running away from myself if you like I've been looking for what I found now but not realizing at the time so believe it or not I sold everything packed up and moved to Canada and became a ski instructor <laughs> I just went that's it I'm off so you skied before oh god yeah yeah I'd, yeah skied for every year for about five six years before that I was 30 at this point so I kind of had an early midlife crisis <laughs> so I was just like, yeah, that's it, I'm done. So I gave my car to my sister, uh, moved out of my house, um, kind of packed what I didn't need into my grand's garage and whoosh, off I went over to Canada. And I was with a load of kids as well. I say kids, they're not, they weren't kids. I think I was the eldest by about eight years. So I was like the mother of the group. But I wasn't meant to be there because I only lasted seven days. I fell off a chairlift and snapped my left leg in half. <laughs> yes, you know. Uh, I broke my leg. Um, I was in hospital in uh, Vancouver for about a month. Um, they put a bracket and six screws in my left left leg. They they did an amazing job. They saved me. But I was non weight bearing for three months. So when I come back to the UK, um, I was meant to be in Canada for a year, and I was back home after I think it was five weeks with my tail between my legs and a broken leg. So I was non weight bearing for three months, and I had one of those big like cage things on my knee which was really attractive and really annoying. What were you thinking of doing? What, what did when I want? When you go back to the UK, what were you thinking you were going to do? Oh, oh, God. I just like, I don't know. I just kind of said to myself, seriously, Joe, what are you going to do now? Just had no clue, to be fair. Um, and even though I was a copper, believe it or not, the experience from being a police officer, people aren't really interested in the world of work. Do you know what I mean? They want yeah. somebody who's actually done a specific role for that time and the police is so varied it's not like it gives you great management skills but I couldn't just go into a managerial job because I've never been a manager per se does that make sense yeah yeah so but going from yeah. an arms officer which must be you know you must be on quite a nice bit of money like being an arms oh, officer God, yeah well I'd been in the cops 10 years um god I was earning a fortune to be fair it wasn't my basic salary I think I'd, I was on, I think it was 32 at the time, so I was on full PC pay, but it was the overtime. There was so much overtime. So I really was making a, a tidy sum, which doesn't make you happy. Yeah. I had an awful lot of money. I had nice houses. I had BMW cars. I was going on holiday three or four times a year. You know, on the outside, I had this great life, but on the inside, I just felt empty. Because, yeah, it's like a catch 22. You'd be at work in the police and you'd have three days coming up off duty. And what people don't realise now is um, with the cops, there's a lot of issues with gangs. And what the gangs were doing were using the, the press, if you like, as their platform to show how big each of them were. Um, so the press agreed with the cops at some high level that they were no longer going to publish anything to do with gang warfare. So... There was a lot going on that the public don't know about. So on rest days, very often, you would get offered. Like, there's people being shot left, right and centre. Don't want to frighten people, but it's happening everywhere. So we would get overtime, double bubble. So it was like 200 quid a shift. And, if well, more than 200 quid a shift. And you'd literally go and sit at the hospital with whoever had been shot and just sit there with your weapon all night. Because if the person came back to finishing them off, Obviously, the staff and everyone there need to, to have a firearms presence. 
So I would be working around the clock. I'd do sometimes two grand a month extra in overtime. But it's so hard because it's I'd have all this money, but then how do you walk away from 200 quid when you've got no else to do that day? You just think, oh, sod it, I'll go and do it. So, yeah, but it made me miserable. And then obviously the money I had saved up helped me in Canada. But then when I come back that quickly dwindled away. So I literally ended up back at the bottom of the, a massive food chain. I ended up back doing agency work. I worked with kids for a while doing, um, you know, kids who have been in homes, but they get to the age of 16 to 18 and they can go in more relaxed living accommodation. So you're trying to teach them their own living skills. So they've got their own front door key, they make their own meals, etc. Um, I used to work shifts in, in a, a couple of them around the Manchester area just to cover bread and butter while I decided what I wanted to do. Well, what was the time that you decided that... Well, to be fair, <laughs> from leaving the police to, which was, I think it was two, 2011 when I left the cops, went to Canada, fell off a chairlift. So from 2011 to 2015, I was literally doing agency work, no sense of direction, not really knowing what it is, what I wanted to do, feeling quite lost kicking myself for leaving the police because of the money and I went through a bit of a turmoil if you like and then I got a job in sales and again I was I don't know why but I had this natural ability um, in sales gift of the gab I suppose and in the space of six months I got three promotions tripled my salary and got a company car and became senior manager in the oil industry so I was then running around the country doing 70 hour weeks in charge of 5 million litres of fuel, 40 sales staff and 10 admin staff. And again, I just threw myself into work, going off around the country, earning a tidy sum again, but still feeling lost, still wondering what my purpose is. And yeah, the problem with me, I get bored. Yeah. I don't like routine, which is probably why the police nearly crippled me so when while you're working for them have you had another epiphany while you're working for the oil company uh, well basically what happened i ended up with a bloke who it wasn't the nicest of characters should we say and i kind of got to a point where i was just questioning everything about my life and i was like i am sick and tired it's almost like a vicious circle that i've been in if you like, find a job, love it, do it for a bit, bored. Find a job, love it, do it a bit, bored. This seeking adventure, all this kind of stuff. And I just went within and I was like, something's got to give. And I was on holiday. Um, where was I? It was for my birthday. Within? So, yeah, within. It was my 38th birthday. I was on holiday and I think, I think I was in Corfu. And we'd gone around May, so the weather was a bit hit and miss. And it was chucking it down for three days solid. So we did what everyone does on holiday and went and propped up the bar for three days. And we got chatting to this couple. Um, and we got really friendly with him. And she bought me a reflexology voucher to use in resort for my birthday. So I went and had this reflexology. And the woman said to me, have you ever heard of Reiki? So I said, yeah, I have, but, you know, I've never had it. And she said, I, I can feel a lot of um, 
pent up emotion and pain inside you. And I think Reiki would really help you. So I literally come back to the UK. There was a practitioner who lived about a mile and a half up the road from me, who I'm now really good friends with. And I started a course of Reiki. And this Reiki, it did something for me that nothing else had ever managed to do. In terms of, I mean, the, the police left me quite depressed and anxious and Reiki just seemed to make everything clear for me and it gave me the courage to walk away from this relationship and it led me on to the Holistic Healing College mm -hmm. down in London. Yeah. So I enrolled on this Holistic Healing course um, and it was, I think it was five modules. So it worked out every other month. I went to London for a long weekend and embarked on this course and I did it for myself really to find out who I am, what I've been searching for, what life's all about, if you like. But the change in me was so significant that it was like a light bulb went off. This is what I'm here to do. So I kind of started training in everything that I had used to heal myself. So I qualified as a spiritual life coach. Um, I pursued angelic Reiki, Reiki, crystal healing. And then what I started to do was I set up my spare room. So I worked my oil industry job job alongside doing my healing if you like um, and I kind of worked the two and I just came into my own and I just all of a sudden felt like I had a purpose it was like I'd found myself for the first time in well 39 I was then so the first time in 39 years I kind of felt comfortable in my own skin happy with who I was didn't feel like I was searching for anything anymore and yeah so I set up my spare room and started doing what I do now but on a much smaller scale. So um, how many people were you getting through the door at that time? How many? How many um, I had two long-term life coaching uh, clients and I probably got about three or four people a week, evenings for a bit of Reiki or a bit of crystal healing or it was just bits. I was kind of playing at it, if you like. Um, it was more of a hobby, but I loved doing it. So yeah so what was the point where you transitioned from like oh your company into doing it full-time how how did you make that transition <laughs> okay so <laughs> i um where was i i was in i was on holiday in uh croatia in 2018 but it's two years ago now seems like yesterday and basically uh I shouldn't have been there in the first place. It was a free holiday. So what happened was I'd been, I don't know if you've ever heard of Nielsen holidays, sports holidays. No. So basically they do skiing holidays, but they also do summer. So it's packed with uh, water sports, tennis, all kinds of. You've not broke your leg again, have you? Hey? You've not broke your leg again. No, no. I went one better than breaking my leg this time, Tim. So I went over there free holiday uh, I was only, mem only meant to be there for a week because um, they'd renovated the the site so they'd invited us for friends and family for a week just to you know see what we thought of the improvements and so forth the second day we were there they offered us a second week free of charge so I ended up staying for an extra two and the day before I was due to fly home um, it was five past eleven in the morning and I was doing a hit class on the beach in front of the ocean it was a gorgeous day and I went down to do my first burpee and oh my god as I came up from doing the burpee 
I literally felt like someone stood behind me with, you know, the pointed pickaxes that you yeah. have in the garden. Mm -hmm. I felt like someone had smashed me in the back of the head with one of them. The pain was like nothing I've ever experienced before in my life. And I, as I dropped down to my knees, I was like physically retching from the pain. And the fitness instructor, Alana, I remember this very clearly. She looked at me and she said, Joe, you're dehydrated. You need water. And I said, Alana, I'm dying. And then as I went down towards the floor, boom popped up out of my body I'd had a massive brain hemorrhage and died and I literally I saw people panicking come over to my physical body and a paramedic who was right next to me on the fitness deck exercising at the time she had come in place of her friends so shouldn't have even been on that holiday she started um, doing mouth to mouth and resuscitating me and then the they attached me to a, a defib and they got me back on the shock of the defib and I came back into my physical body. But I, I only really fully integrated with my physical body the day after uh, when I come yeah. out of surgery. So, integrated. Um, so I came out of my body and I was with my granddad who passed in 2009 and he basically said to me, Listen, Joe. I was expecting the fucking podcast to go like this, Joe. I thought we were just yeah. fucking police firearms. Why <laughs> <did> you die? <laughs> Sorry. Go on. So, yeah. So I came, I literally, I died. My physical body died. And I felt the detachment from my body. And initially I was fighting it, which is why I was in so much pain. And, and then I, all of a sudden I come out and oh my God, we are so much bigger than our physical body. It's, it's really hard to put this bit into, into words, but we can kind of... Have you ever looked... It's like a telescope. Oh, when you're breaking up a bit. Hold on. Oh, have you got me? Yeah, go on. It's like um, a telescope thing that you look through. And the images at the end change. It kind of looked like that. And then my granddad appeared and he basically said, listen, Joe, this has to happen here and it has to happen now, but you're going to be perfectly okay. So I was. Um, they literally, they took me to the nearest hospital and they scanned me and said she's had a brain hemorrhage, um, an aneurysm on the left hand subarachnoid part of my lower brain had burst when I'd done this burpee didn't know I had this aneurysm and I was now bleeding out onto my brain but the hospital was just a normal medical center they weren't equipped so they had to blue light me three hours across country an airlift surgeon in who met me at the hospital they took me down to surgery they fed they went in through the main artery in my groin so they didn't have to drill a hole in my head they fed three titanium coils up through the back of my heart and plugged to the bleed uh, on the left-hand side of my brain. Um, my mum literally had to get a hire car and drive across country to get to me. And when she got there, they wouldn't let her see me because it was past visited hours. Can you believe that? So my mum had to wait till the next day. Um, and she was basically told that the next 24 hours for me were critical because if the the titanium coils didn't hold or I had another bleed I would die 
So my mum went away to find a bed, sit somewhere, to park up for the night, not knowing whether I was going to live or die. After travelling all throughout the day cross-country to get to me, not even knowing if I was alive. And then um, it was ten past four the following day. And I kind of came back into my surroundings and I could hear, I could hear stuff that I could never hear before. It's so hard to put it into words, but to give you an idea, the, I could hear conversations going on like around the whole of the hospital and I could see through walls, through things I had a choice of whether I wanted to be in the physical body or whether I wanted to be out of it um, and all my senses were heightened like off the scale heightened and it was it was confusing it was nice it was weird it was all these amazing things um, but I remember seeing the first concrete thing that I could see in this physical body back in back in the now was my dad's head silhouetted by a clock on the wall that said 10 past four and they basically said um they told me I'd had this brain hemorrhage and brain surgery and the surgeon was adamant I didn't have brain damage but he didn't know um how long my recovery period would be um just so you're aware the statistics on what happened to me only one in four make it to hospital. And of those one in four, 70% die. The remaining 30% tend to have anywhere from three to three years rehabilitation um, to get basic things back like walking, talking, um, stuff like that. And very often as well, it changes your personality. Um, anyway, 10 days later, I walked out of hospital with absolutely nothing wrong with me. They just couldn't fathom it. Um, I was in intensive care for seven days. Uh, my mum was only allowed to see me for an hour a day. My only real memory of intensive care, the, the brain injury, should we say, the very mild brain injury I had was where the bleed was, it was on my gag reflex. So if you put anything near my mouth, even a straw to drink water, I would literally gag. And for some bizarre reason, the nurses decided to feed me spaghetti bolognese which went all down the wall next to me so I just have this image of this orange plastered all over the wall which was quite amusing bless them um, and also when I they released me from intensive care after seven days and put me onto a normal ward and they said that I would suffer with headaches um, dizziness etc and it was all part of the recovery in the brain I didn't have any medication whatsoever. There was just nothing wrong with me. They sent a physio team to me um, the day before they released me because the doctor was, he couldn't keep me in hospital, but he didn't want to release me because of what just happened to me. So I had to go through this like home care release process with a physio team, which they do with patients many, many months down the line to basically say that I was fit and well. And the physio team reported back and said, there is absolutely no reason to keep Jo in this hospital. She's fine. So I literally, I left hospital after 10 days. I wasn't fit to fly for another two weeks. So I went back to resorts and had another two weeks holiday. I was swimming a mile a day in the Olympic sized swimming pool. And you would think nothing had happened to me. Never needed any medication. Nothing. Are you, are you acting like nothing's happened or have you got a, a, a different sense of like... <laughs> 
life at this point after what's happened to you? To be fair, I was, when it first happened, I didn't really have any sense of it in, it's bizarre. My mum obviously was panicked and she just kept crying. Everyone, even the staffing resort when I returned, everyone was just looking at me and crying. And it was really hard for me to comprehend what I'd gone through because I was five. It yeah. didn't feel to me like it had happened. It had happened, but I made peace with it so quickly because for me, it was like, oh, by far the best thing that has ever happened to me, which sounds daft, but it yeah. really is. Because for me, the universe got hold of me by the scruff of the neck and said, look, Joe, everything you come to realize about yourself and life is real. Now get back there and get on with it. So it just took all the doubts, all the fear, all the worry, like gone in an instant and I was like woof right that's it this this is what I'm here to do this is you know we don't die spirituality is who I am everything I've read about in books you know seen through meditation it's real and what I realized was who we are at soul level and where we come from is more real than what we see with the physical eyes so for me it was very peaceful but it was really difficult how other people got so upset in front of me. Like they couldn't speak to me without crying. And they kept saying to me, oh my God, have you got any idea how lucky you are? And yeah, it was just, it was so surreal. And really. Do you, do you think that I am quite lucky or do you not look at it like that? Oh God, that? I know, I know I am so lucky to be here, to be alive. But what I've learned on my spiritual journey is I planned that for this life. That was my awakening so that I could get on with what it is I'm here to do, if that makes sense. Um, I'm grateful that I didn't have any disabilities or, you know, um, issues to overcome. And But for me, people always say, oh, my God, you know, you're an inspiration and you're so lucky to be here and blah, 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 blah. And it's great to hear, but the way I see it is, I had a brain hemorrhage, but it was just like breaking my toe because I got over it so quick. I've not had to overcome anything. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like a lot of people who have had what I've, I've had, you know, four or five years down the line, their life isn't the same. They can't do what they used to do. They can't speak for themselves. And for me, all I did was do a burpee, come up and go, oh my God, that hurts. Then wake up in hospital then go off on these mad adventures with my soul, then go back to the resort and carry on with my holiday. <laughs> Which, yeah. you know, yeah, no, I, it, is, it is all inspiring and it's like, oh my God. But mm. for me, you know, somebody who's really inspirational is someone who's like an awakening in a way. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, that, kind of, massive... that sort of like confirmed what you already thought. Yeah. To a degree. Yeah. This so like, what now that's happened to you? What what were you thinking? Right now, I'm going to get on it. Oh well, yeah, I was in resort. I kind of it was weird. I was on this high, like I've never been on a high before, and I could hear, and my senses were just off the scale, and it was really difficult to kind of ground and balance myself. I could literally, I'd be walking along in my physical body, but I could feel myself floating off out, and I would 
constantly have to be focusing on bringing myself back in because I, I would be splitting myself from myself, if which probably sounds weird, but um, I don't know. How can I explain it? Have you ever had helium? Yeah. Or got up too quick and whoa, you, you feel like you have to stand still for a minute because you feel dizzy. Yeah. It was like that separation all the time to coming and going from physical to ethereal back to physical to ethereal so that was hard to integrate my sound i could hear stuff from i could hear people out at sea actual conversations they were having which is just really random i could hear birds that you couldn't even see and then they would they would come into vision and so that was all weird but for the remainder of the holiday i felt really grateful like I had this really deep sense of gratitude inside of me and I decided and love as well. I kind of, I've always been a very loving person, but I absolutely loved everybody. Nobody got on my tits anymore. Don't know if you're allowed to say that on a podcast. Sorry. <laughs> um, it was just, I had so much empathy for everybody and I felt a part of everybody and connected to everybody. And it was a really nice feeling. But then as the holiday started coming to an end, or the, the last part of the holiday started to come to an end, I always say, and I put this in the book, what goes up must come down. I kind of started to slip down and I ended up in a really quite a bad state of depression when what, I got back to the why, UK. Why was that? I think what it was, it, it was the, the reality of what had happened to me started to take hold of me because... It's like if you, if you suddenly you want a, a car, you start seeing that car all around the place. Have you ever experienced that? You think, oh, really? And then you start seeing that car everywhere. So what yeah. happened when I got back to the UK? Everybody I spoke to seemed to know somebody who'd had what I'd had, but died. And that was when the realisation kind of started kicking in with me. There's, in fact, there's the, those people who I know or who have approached me and said, oh, this happened to my friend, it happened to my mom, or whatever. I think there's only two that survived, but they're severely disabled from it. So it was kind of, that was really hard, dealing with that. And then also, even though when I came back into myself and I had this high, I suddenly came back to the UK, and I didn't know who I was anymore because I'd never been this version of me. Does that make yeah, sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I kind of, I went through a period of feeling really lost because I was like totally detached from my oil industry job. I just didn't want to do it anymore. Um, but it was my bread and butter and I hadn't built my holistic business up enough to support myself. So I kind of went into this. I just didn't want to face the world, if you like. I'd been so content, sat in Croatia on the seafront, feeling grateful for everything, that when the time came to come back and face this new reality, I just felt overwhelmed by everything. And I ended up suffering quite bad depression to the point where I wished I hadn't survived. Really? And it's hard to, yeah, yeah, I did. I, I wished that I hadn't survived because I just didn't, I couldn't be who I now was because I didn't know who I was anymore, which was really weird and I also felt terribly guilty 
for feeling the way I felt after being so lucky. The guilt consumed me, if you like. And because I didn't want to put my burdens onto other people, I didn't speak to anybody about it. I drove myself dual with it in the head and I ended up um, on antidepressants. And they said um, it's a common side effect to suffer with depression after a brain injury because it lowers and alters all the chemicals in the brain. And obviously someone's been poking around in my head with metal and what have you. Um, so it yeah, could also be like sort of PTSD because you've had such a trauma, like yeah. you're seriously traumatic. Yeah, you've yeah. not I dealt with that. You just think you've yeah. had them, but really, yeah. it was it was like a, a, a delayed reaction to it all, if you like. Um, and that happened. I think it kicked in around. I got back from Croatia, beginning of June, and the depression had started to kick in. And it took hold of me till probably September, October time. Um, and I was in a bit of a dilemma as well because my job, I was dead lucky. They carried on paying me, but they wouldn't let me go back to work because they weren't convinced that after a brain hemorrhage and brain surgery, I should be back at work. So I had a, there was a big wait between me getting back from Croatia, getting seen by a doctor in the UK. So I was off work, so I had nothing to do, if you like. Um, and then, lo and behold, they made me redundant. So I lost my job. So I, I was literally stripped to nothing. Oh, and I lost my house as well. Forgot to mention that bit. My mum, bless her, she thought that um, I would need long-term care after when I was in intensive care. Um, spent too much time on Google, I think, bless her. So she gave notice on my flat. So when I did come back from Croatia, I had to move all my stuff out of my flat. So I had nowhere to live. And then I lost my job. And obviously I died. So I was literally stripped to nothing, to just this shell. And that's where... Was it an epiphany bit, Quill? What was the epiphany? <laughs> the epiphany was, I just I threw myself in to what I do now. You just... I literally... There were no sign or anything you just thought no i just knew i kind of i got past the the sulking bit and i just thought joe what are you doing you've just survived a brain hemorrhage get up and get on with it so i did can you and remember I, that, can you remember that moment you did that oh yeah i was um i was flicking through facebook like you do and i saw this skull workshop i don't hear into crystals or if anybody out there is into crystals um so I saw this skull workshop with the, my friend or the lady who, who did Reiki with me and kick-started my journey. And I scrolled past it and something in here went, oh, you need to go to that. So I went back up, found the events and I messaged Deb and I said, have you got any spaces on this uh, workshop? Because it was the day after. And she said, I've not. She said, but for you, I have. I'll put a chair out. I'll see you tomorrow. So I went and being back in that environment of like-minded people, it just kind of catapulted me back into a positive place. And my motivation kind of overnight came back. And I literally, I had nothing. I had no house, I had no money. And I needed to start my business and I just trusted. And I kind of just said to the universe, right, this is what I'm here to do you want me to do it show me lead the way and then I just followed what what came to me 
I built a vision board. I've always had vision boards since 2015. So I built a vision board of what I wanted and just got to work. And it, the way what, it all unfolded. What were you doing? What kind of thing what, were you doing? When you first started, what were you, what were you doing? What were you doing? Work? Oh, okay. What were you doing? So I, um, there was a, there's a spiritual hub not far from where I live. And the lady there found me on Facebook. And she said, Joe, I don't suppose you'd be interested in renting my space. I've got a community of a thousand followers. And we basically, my space provides people come in and run workshops and healing and da 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 da. So I was like, yeah. oh. So I went along and booked my, I think I booked two workshops a month for the next three months. And I just made a start. And then over time, people, the numbers got bigger and bigger and it just grew from there. And then I went to uh, see Leah at Ascend Hot Yoga to run a sound bath. And when I went there, found that space and she said, I don't suppose this would be of any use to you. And I was like, oh my God, there it is. And then, yeah, I carried on doing what I was doing. But then I think, oh, this is what's really interesting. End of May last year, I found Leah at Ascend and I was due to open my doors at Ascend Hot Yoga on the 30th of June. And the week before on the Thursday, so the Sunday was the 30th, so on the Thursday, I went to Walton Hospital for my follow-up appointment from my initial aneurysm. And I went there. Uh, completely completely convinced that everything was fine because i'd have no issues not even a headache to grumble about so i went down there parked up paid three quid for half an hour's parking effed and jeffed a bit moaned about the energy in the place my name come up on the board and i went down and went into this surgeon and my stomach as soon as i got in there i just thought something's not right and he sat me down, he got his desk set up like Starship Enterprise with all these screens around in a circle. And he said, come and sit here. So I sat down and for the first time I saw the inside of my brain on the screen, which was so interesting. But there was a, he showed me my aneurysm, the, the, the one that had burst in Croatia. And it was, it was massive. It looked like the size of an orange, he'd blown it up that big on the screen. But you could clearly see that it was no longer properly plugged. Um, and what he said was, he said, you've got coil condensing. So I was like, right, okay. And at this point, I literally, I was crying, but kind of not aware I was crying. It was like my soul was crying for me. So all these tears are coming down my face and he put his hand on my hand. And he said, Joe, he said, if we don't operate, he said, you will die because this is no longer a ticking time bomb. It's an atomic bomb. So I was like, oh, and they said, but there's more. So I was like, what? And at this point, like the whole room was just closing in on me. And I just, I sat there and I, I literally in my mind said, what more do you want me to go through in this life universe? Because I just don't think I've got anything left in me. So the surgeon pointed to an aneurysm behind my right eye, which had gone undetected from my last scans. And he basically said to me, Joe, if this aneurysm in your right eye bursts, you will go blind. He said, you may survive like you did the first time, but you will go blind. So I said, right, okay. 
and he said uh, with the initial surgery that you've had we need to do something with the coils he said we might have to put another coil in he said but what i need to make you aware of is you're at a higher degree of a uh, higher chance of having a stroke because we are going into an aneurysm that's already open if we put a coil in and it forces the other coils out you will bleed out and die but if we don't do anything he said the chances are it will erupt again and you'll die anyway so what do you want to do so I was just like, seriously? So I kind of said to him, okay, so you need to go back in. I need to have double brain surgery. So he said, yeah. So I said, right, okay, no problem. But what are you going to do with the initial aneurysm? So he said, Joey said, I can't tell you what I'm going to do to it till I'm in there. He said, all I can say is I will do my best to fix it. He said, but I just don't know what I'm going to do till I get in there. So I said, right, okay. So I left the hospital and I was, my head had fell off massively. I came home, I went to the shop, I got a pack of, a crate of Stella and I literally sat in my room for over a day and I just drank and cried and drank a bit more, swore a lot and just thought, what, why save me from a brain hemorrhage to put me through this again? Anyway, I resurfaced on the Saturday and I said, right, that's it, I'm carrying on as normal. So I opened my doors on the Sunday um, and I basically spent that four weeks that I was waiting for my surgery to write my own fully accredited uh, training courses and become accredited. And that's where Inner Wisdom Holistic Training Academy was born because I was actually called Vibrant Soul before that. So to occupy my time, I spent those four weeks um, writing my own training courses. Uh, and I told myself that I was going to be okay. I told the world I was going to be okay. And I, I just carried on as normal. And my family were devastated. And they were always getting really upset and crying, which was really hard for me because I was trying to not go down the what-if path because I'm fully aware that you attract what you most think about into your life. So the time came for my surgery and they admitted me on the Monday. They... They released me down for surgery on the Tuesday. They woke me up at past six in the morning, which was so annoying. Got me up for a shower. Um, I got into all my surgical attire, my big massive leg socks, these hideous knickers and this gown, sat on my bed waiting to go down. And it got to quarter past three and I'd still not gone down because they'd had some emergencies come in. So the nurse actually came to me and said, Joe, I don't even know if he's going to do it now because it's so late in the day. And obviously your surgery, you've got two aneurysms, blah, blah, blah. So I thought, oh, Jesus. Anyway, she appeared about 15 minutes later and she said, the surgeon and his team are staying to do your surgery. However, there's a 45 minute wait for a bed. So I said to the nurse, well, can I not walk down? And she went, well, yeah, if you want to. So I literally put my trainers on and walked down to surgery, knocked on the door, all the surgery team were there, they're kind of laughing, saying, could you not wait, Joe? I was like, uh, nope. There was no chance I was going through that four weeks again. So I got on the bed and they did what they did, and I came round, and the first thing I said was, have I had a stroke? And I remember the surgeon saying, no, Joe, you've not had a stroke and you've not died. I literally have been chewing my lip for nearly five hours so my lip was I could see my lip the bottom of my lip with my eye 
So I, it looked like my face was a bit like sloth because I've been chewing my lips. I was panicking that I'd had this stroke, but I hadn't. So he came round the next day to see me and he basically said um, the aneurysm, the initial aneurysm, he said it's rectified itself. He said, but what we've done is put a stent behind your right eye um, to make sure that it doesn't erupt and you know as far as we're concerned you're fixed and it's just follow appointments from here on in they discharged me with anodin and cloppy dog will which is a blood thinner and they basically said to me i was going to get headaches and i needed to rest and refrain from work and the usual stuff that they do so this was the wednesday they released me that wednesday to come home so in monday surgery tuesday released wednesday came home went to bed got up friday morning and i was back in work fine the following monday i was back at the gym and my body rejected the blood thinning medication so i ended up being one of the only patients in the uk who was on cloppy dog will once every four days it's usually life threatening to have it less than once every day and the only reason I had it one every four is to appease the surgeon because he would not allow me to come off it. So. I mean, that's a story now, like I know. <laughs> so here I am, um, two lots of brain surgery later. Um, and the good news is I had my uh, follow-up appointment just before lockdown and I've been given the all clear. That's so amazing. they, yeah, they don't need to go in, touch wood again. Um, I've just got to have routine checks now on the stents and the coils to make sure they're intact, if you like. So I'm unmedicated and running my business and fit as a fiddle. Shouldn't even be here, but I'm as fit as a fiddle. So reflecting back on it, on it all now, what, yeah. what is your purpose? My purpose? Oh, I'm definitely here to help people step past this illusion of separation and come into one with the soul to learn about who they are at soul level shine or spread the light anchor the light if you like um i've written a book about all this which has just been published perfect timing for the lockdown perfect um, what is it what, what's the name of the book it's called never judge a book by its cover by joanne horton and it's available on amazon um, yeah so yeah i just feel like i'm i'm well i know i'm here to help others to heal and reintegrate and become their authentic selves and that's what i do how do you do that for people who are kind of um sort of resistance to all the woo woo bit of it because the um, world that you live in is very much oh, kind isn't it and nothing, yeah. there's nothing wrong with that but yeah do you know what I mean? I don't feel like, you know, it, it puts a lot of people off that side of it. Oh, yeah. I don't think spirituality needs to be like that for some yeah. people. But that's what I like about you. And in fact, that's what I like about Leah as well, is the fact yeah. that you've just got the edge about you. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like me, I don't want somebody coming in my sacred heart centre. Listen, I understand that. I got that. But yeah. I don't think you're talking to me like that. Yes. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm totally with you on that. Um, one thing about me is I'm not a big fan of this love and light 
exactly yeah. everyone in spirituality is always they always sign off on email saying love and light or they send messages yeah. saying love and light it's yeah. nice but yeah, spirituality yeah. is it's not all this airy fairy crap your ego is always going to be there i bought a fully liberated car with inner wisdom holistic training academy plastered all down the side of it but the other day before lockdown i was on keep me on and giving someone the v's because they cut me up nice. it's we're still human beings yeah, yeah. I was laughing to myself after because I was thinking, oh my God. My number mobile's there just in case you want to get me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's it's not about all fluffy. Spirituality, you know, coming home to yourself is hard work, it's hard graft, and it's ugly. You've got to come to terms with all that you are and accept all of your crap and all of the crap stuff you've done. And it's about finding balance. You know, one of the main reasons we're here in a human in a human body is to venture back to ourselves. But it's not all about airy fairy, lovely fluffy stuff. That's an aspect of it. It's nice to be that way, and I do try to be that way as much as I can. But there's always going to be people who go on your pip. It's healthy to swear and let stuff out. And I suppose the way I operate, I'm dead down to earth. Um, I'm not politically correct either. I don't believe in any of that stuff. I'm all about having a laugh. And I suppose I, the way I reach people is I'm dead transparent in who I am. So my blog, my book, everything is my truth. And I say it as it is. And I let people choose. You know, if they want to come to me, my door's open, you're welcome. But what I don't do is ram my opinions and thoughts and stuff down people's neck do, do you know what i mean yeah, no, definitely it, get you know when people come into my space i always say this is what i believe but you know take what resonates and leave what doesn't i don't want people to become a mini version of me and you know what people need to understand is spirituality isn't one size fits all and what works for one won't always work for another and you don't have to be a tree hugger to be spiritual. We're all spiritual. Do, do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, and, yeah. Totally, totally needs, exactly yeah, there needs to be a balance. Like, I often laugh at myself, me, because I've got two Facebook pages. I've got Joe Horton Facebook page, and then I've yeah. got me in a wisdom Facebook page. And I have a laugh on me in a wisdom Facebook page, but my Joe Horton Facebook page is completely different. It's, you've got to, you know, your human self is a part of who you are. I can be meditating one minute and then watching a horror movie on Netflix the next or effing and jeffing one minute and having a pint in the pub and then teaching a meditation course the next. It's, it's normal. It's not normal to be lovey-dovey, fluffy, living up there all the time, hugging trees all the time. It's, it's all about balance, no, ma you know, no matter what it is. And I think as well, what I've learned is life is very much to do with perspectives and everybody's perspective is different. And it's about honoring each other's perspective and understanding that there's no right or wrong and everyone's entitled to their own viewpoints. Yeah. yeah? yeah do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, so yeah. like people will come into my space and, you know, if they say, well, I don't believe in that, I believe in this. I encourage that because it's, it's healthy to have your own opinions and viewpoints yeah. about about everything. So yeah, I, I kind of say to my students, take on board what resonates and leave what doesn't. Find your own truth is what I encourage everyone to do. So just just tell me some of the things that you do, Joel, just so anybody listening knows the kind of things that you do. Yeah, okay. Um, 
I go to the pub a lot. I go to the cinema. I'm joking. <laughs> so in terms of training, um, I have a spiritual life coaching diploma, which is available online or in person. Meditation teacher. Again, that's online or in person. I'm also big into my sound. So I have a sound practitioner diploma, um, biofield clearing practitioner certificate. I teach Reiki one through to master and I teach angelic Reiki one through to master. And I'm also a soul plan teacher. Um, soul plan. So when I was at the Holistic Healing College in London, uh, I had my soul plan done, which is fantastic. So I'm a soul plan practitioner, so I can do soul plan readings for other people. And it basically identifies worldly and spiritual challenges, talents, goals, and then ultimately your soul destiny. So what you are here to achieve in this lifetime. Um, and just before lockdown, I qualified as a teacher of that healing modality. So that's what I also offer as well. And I also do workshops for beginners. So I do Heal Yourself with Sound, um, Introduction to Crystals, Angel Oracle Card Reading, and I also do a belief clearing workshop to help us to help people get out of their own way. Where can people find you then? If they want one of these services, where can they find you? You can find me on Facebook, um, Inner Wisdom Holistic Training Academy. You can also find me on Instagram, same, Inner Wisdom Holistic Training Academy, and on YouTube if you're interested in guided meditations. I've whacked a load on there um, for people to do in their own time. I'm on LinkedIn. Joanne Horton and my website is www.inner-wisdom.co.uk And where are you based? I am based in Lee, Greater Manchester. At Ascend Hot Yoga. At, at Ascend Hot Yoga. Yeah. That's it, Joe. I've just gone through your life. I can't believe it. My head fell off at the park. So I was just like, what the fuck is she on about? He unleashed his died. Oh, you're talking about a bit of Reiki, love. <laughs> was all right to you? Oh, it's breaking up a little bit. All right, you got it. Right, Joe. Um, oh, sorry. It's all right. Um, I'm going to I'm have to come and get one of your crystal healing things done. Definitely. Yeah. That sound bath was sick. I loved it. I had the best. Oh, I love sound. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds ace. Right, Dave. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Stay safe, and I shall see you soon. Thank you.